Morning, gents. We are in Matthew chapter 13. Your Bible probably will automatically open there if you just open it up. 1847 is the page number. And uh, last time, we, we noticed that Jesus, all these parables been lumped together by Matthew. Whether Jesus told them all at one time is, is not necessarily the case, but what we have here is a sermon about the kingdom. And this sermon consists of seven parables. So we're getting to see the, the way in which Jesus teaches through these parables. And we're also seeing the substance of what he's teaching in the kingdom. We saw last time that Jesus teaches in parables for a couple of obvious reasons. Uh, and the obvious reasons are that uh, parables very nicely illustrate uh, for us spiritual truths. And Jesus was an expert at taking something with which we were very familiar and using that as an analogy with something with which we were not so familiar. So it's a wonderful teaching technique. You notice that he doesn't get too wrapped up in the story. He doesn't make the story longer than it has to be. It's just simply a, an illustration to open our minds to understand something. Also, he's teaching in parables because he really wants his disciples to understand the kingdom. There's something mysterious about it. But we also saw last time, perhaps a little bit to our surprise, that Jesus has another purpose in teaching in parables, and that is that parabolic teaching is a form of judgment upon the world, upon unbelief, upon those who dig their heels in and will not receive Jesus Christ as Messiah. The parables come as a, an act of judgment because what seems so helpful to us the spiritual truths are being opened up by the parables. Just the opposite is happening uh, to those who refuse to receive Jesus as Messiah. The opposite happens. The parables further obscure the kingdom to them so that the more Jesus teaches in parables, the more confused they get. And we know from Isaiah 6, which Jesus cites here, even the harder their hearts get. So seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear, they will not perceive. So the teaching of Jesus is done in such a way that it helps those who do submit to the Lord as the King and Messiah. But it actually judges those further. It's an act of judgment upon those who will not hear. It's an amazing and a challenging thing. And we've seen how important it is for us to be sure that our hearts are always open to His teaching that we never harden our hearts to Jesus as the Lord. Otherwise, we will not understand the Bible. We've seen how this applies then to all the teachings of the Scriptures. The reading the Bible is eminently a spiritual exercise. You are submitting yourself to the Lord when you read the Bible and not just gaining new factual information. You are gaining new factual information, but you are primarily listening to the voice of the Lord who claims to be the Lord of the universe and also claims to be your Father through Jesus Christ. We need to listen to Him very carefully. And it's when we have that attitude of a real listener, a real learner, that the mysteries that are proclaimed by the gospel become clear to us and encourage us rather than discourage us. We saw also last time that the reason for the parables on the kingdom is that there were obviously some ways in which the disciples could be very confused and discouraged about the types of responses they were getting from the people around them. We saw in chapters 11 and 12 
which would be right before the, this major sermon, Jesus was facing some significant opposition. And the question that any disciple would have, especially those who didn't have the opportunity to, to go for higher learning, didn't have the opportunity to study under the rabbis, always had great respect for their clergy. The question would be, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if this really is the one, why aren't the educated people, the leaders of our country, the spiritually minded people, why aren't they following him? What's wrong here with this picture? Jesus is claiming to be Messiah, but we're, we're getting a non-Messianic response. So Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom. Because, and this is very important for us, especially as Americans. If you've grown, been reared and you've grown up in this country, you've grown up in a, in a culture in which the Christian position was considered the dominant view. And you expect that if something's right, it will prevail. Sort of Gamaliel's advice, if you will. You remember what Gamaliel said when the Sanhedrin was opposing Peter and John. He said, Gamaliel said, if this is the Lord, if this is of the Lord, you can't stop it. And if it's, if it's not, it'll die of its own. Seems like tremendous wisdom. Except that that doesn't work. That's pragmatic expediency, which doesn't seek to find out what the truth is. It just leaves the truth to be measured by the results. Well, if you did that in certain parts of this world, you would certainly deem Christianity to be a lie because it has been snuffed out in some places by persecution. So is that how you're going to measure what the truth is? Where, where does it prosper? And the disciples had the same mentality really as Gamaliel, that if this is successful, then it will prosper. Well, of course, we know in the end, of course, that which is true will prosper and will succeed. But sometimes not in the short run. That's what Jesus is teaching them. Watch out how you measure what is of the Lord. What, how you measure where the kingdom is at work. And so Jesus had to explain this. And he does it marvelously through these parables. Giving us the wisdom of the ages through the very simple agricultural illustrations that he uses. And last time we saw in the four soils that Jesus teaches in parables for this reason... And we saw that in the four soils, Jesus was teaching his disciples that the, the problem is not with whether the message is true. The problem is not with, which, uh, with, with whether the Messiah is indeed the Messiah. No, the, the sower sows seeds on the ground. Nothing wrong with the sower, nothing wrong with the seeds, the Word of God. The variable is the soil that it falls upon. And so in that parable, Jesus was teaching them the, the, the difficulty is not with the sower nor with the seed, not with the Messiah nor with His message. The problem is with the four soils, and there are four different types. Now, of course, we saw there that marvelously explains why Jesus is getting different responses. And certainly, it explains why He's getting very negative responses because of, of hard soil and, or, or soils that are infested with weeds and thorns. But we also saw in that parable that the Word of God is a double-edged sword. It cuts in many ways. And we learned that we need to be very careful about how we cultivate the soil of our own hearts. What are our souls like? Are they good, are they good souls, good soil, in which the Word of God will land and develop and grow and flourish and then, of course, bear fruit? So that was the first parable we looked at last time in verses 1 through 23. I want us to pick up today with verse 24, and we'll read through verse 43. And here we're going to have 
three parables uh, that Jesus teaches about the kingdom. And once again, a couple of the, the latter two are very similar. The first one is teaching us something else very important about the kingdom of God and about good and evil. And it just makes me laugh. You know, I, I've, I've, read, I've read many things on, on theodicy, and uh, they're very philosophical and very complex, and Jesus just tells a little story to explain theodicy. Uh, it, it, let me remind you what theodicy is. Uh, theodicy comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and the D-I-C-Y, D-C, comes from dikaio, which means righteousness or justification. So a theodicy is the justification of God. The theodicy is the explanation of good and evil in our world. You know, all the questions about where did evil come from and, and why is it here and what's going to happen with it and how does it fit into a world that God rules. And we have many, many philosophical explanations of that. I, I have my own, you know, through the years. But here Jesus just tells a little story and just, just nails it, you know. And it's memorable. And it's, it, it absolutely opens up the windows of our minds to understand good and evil in our world. Well, let's take a look at this first parable then. We'll actually read all three of them. We'll spend most of our time probably in the first one. Verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, let's, let's look at verses 24 through 30 and the explanation of that first parable in verses 36 through 43. So let's, let's sort of combine the beginning of our reading and the end of our reading because one is the parable and the other is, the, is Jesus' interpretation of the parable. And what this parable is teaching us about the kingdom is that it's now corrupted, but later will be purified. That's what he's teaching them. Now it's corrupted, but later it's going to be uncorrupted. It's going to be purified. So don't measure the authenticity of the kingdom by its appearance now. Don't measure the church, for example, by what it looks like to you right now. Of course the church is full of hypocrites, and when you joined it, you just added one more. Uh, you know, so of course, there's all kinds of ways in which you can uh, critique us. It was most interesting to me this week with Pope Benedict XVI resigning uh, to read. Uh, did you read the op-eds in New York Times? They just excoriated him. Uh, one of the op-eds said, uh, Pope Benedict XVI quit. Good. And then they went into this long litany of all the things that he has done uh, that they disagree with, uh, including, you know, no women priests and uh, no allowance for uh, abortion and all these things that, that probably a good number of you here in this room agree with the Pope about. Uh, and it was just amazing to me how they, just like a, a wave of criticism uh, from the New York Times. And, and I didn't see, maybe, maybe later in the week there was a positive op-ed but there were three negative ones. I didn't see a positive one. Frankly, I, I think Benedict XVI is a very brilliant person and has been an amazing leader. He's challenged the, the postmodernism in Western Europe and Western civilization. He, he came out boldly, made a statement about uh, what Islam needed to do to, to deal with reason and history uh, instead of attacking people. Uh, he... Um, he certainly uh, confessed the sins of the church, uh, some that were more, most recent and very flagrant. Uh, so, I mean, we would say that he's, he's been an outstanding leader, but, whoo, man, did he take it on the chin from the New York Times? Well, I guess who wouldn't? That is probably, if you take it on the chin from the New York Times, that's probably a sign you're living a pretty good life. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can look at that. The powerful New York Times, you know, the, the most powerful newspaper in the entire world probably. And, and there's, there's your obituary. You know, he's not even dead yet, you know. And uh, there's, your, there's your New York Times obituary before it's written. And uh, it's just completely negative and critical. And you've got you to gotta ask yourself, you know, uh, a, a weaker man would say, is this worth it? <laughs> you know, I think I should have resigned a long time ago. Uh, but Jesus is saying, look, of course, things in this world are corrupted. Uh, and the church gets corrupted. And everything around us is corrupted. But don't think that means it's always going to be corrupted. So don't lose heart. He's giving information to his disciples about why they should persevere. 
So, so let's look first of all at how things are now corrupted. This will be verses 24 through 29 and, and then Jesus' explanation in 36 through 39a. First of all, you notice that he teaches us that God is the one who sows seeds in this world. You want to know what you are? You're a seed of God sown into a corrupt world. So God has put you here. Yes, I know that your mommy and daddy got together and you were born and so on. And you can explain all that naturally. But let me tell you what it is spiritually. God has sown you into his world. And if you're living in Memphis, he's sown you right here in this particular part of his field. And you notice that Jesus teaches us that the, the, um, the, uh, the son of man is the one who's sowing. So it's Christ himself. And he teaches us that the field is the world. So he's not only put you in the church, he's actually put you in the world. And the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, he says in verse 39a. So the sons of the kingdom are intentionally put out there into a very vicious world. We saw this in Matthew 10 in the Sermon on Mission, that we're sheep uh, to be slaughtered. We're sheep to be eaten by the wolves. We have been sown by God. And so you can see that the Abrahamic strategy or God's strategy with Abraham in Genesis 12 is being fulfilled here. That God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and the nations will be blessed through you. So you are sown into the world to bless all the nations. And of course, the ultimate blessing that any nation receives is when its people come to know the Lord as Savior. They have eternal life as well. That is what we're sown to do. So don't think that it's an accident or poor old you. You ended up in a very corrupt place. Things are very, very difficult. You feel like sometimes you're just swamped with evil. No, this is the whole strategy. You're sons of Abraham. <laughs> this is what it's supposed to be. You're the sons of Abraham sown into the world. Yes, you're in the church, but you're sown into the world. You've been sown into the fabric of the world for a reason. Salt and light. And if the salt doesn't get out of the salt shaker, if the light doesn't turn on, then you're no good at all. And when you do that, you're going to make the surrounding world get a little upset, as we know. But notice here, first of all, that you've been sown into the world by the Lord. This isn't going to last forever, but for now that's where you've been sown. Now secondly, notice in verses 25 through 26 that the devil also sows and he sows weeds in this world. But while his men were sleeping, isn't that interesting? While we were sleeping, look what the devil did. The enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And he says in verse 39a, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So God is sowing seeds, his own sons, in this world. But guess what? Here's the theodicy. You want to know where evil came from? The devil. And Jesus just says very simply, no fancy philosophical explanations. He said, when he's asked, where did these weeds come from? He says, an enemy did it. There's an enemy. There's another being, a personal being that explains the presence of evil. He's perpetrating all kinds of evil. He's alive, he's personal, and he's the enemy of God, 
And he's the enemy of God's sons who are sown into the world. And that enemy is sowing his seeds everywhere, sowing his wild oats. And what are his wild oats? His wild oats are weeds, which are the sons of the devil. And you notice there's no third choice here, that the ones that are sown, you're either a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ, or you are in the family of the devil. You're his instrument. You're his, you're his servant. You're one of his minions. And so here you have it. This is the explanation of evil. Now, of course, if you're a philosopher, you're going to say, yeah, but where'd the devil, where'd the devil come from? Answer, is really simple, three words, I don't know. Uh, and the Bible doesn't tell you, and no philosopher can explain it. We have no idea where the devil came from. Certainly there are hints in the Bible that these were falling angels. But, uh, brothers, we don't know that for sure. And uh, even if we did, you still have another philosophical question. Why did God allow an angel to fall out of heaven? And if an angel did fall out of heaven, why didn't he just wipe him out and annihilate him? So you've still got questions. Answer three words. Stick with it. Because if you try to answer it, when the Bible has no answer for it, you're going to end up in a ditch. You're going to end up in a theological or a philosophical ditch. There are things called mysteries, like the Incarnation or like the Trinity. If you say to me, is God three or is he one? Answer, yes. Uh, if you try to answer, you end up in a ditch. If I say these three but not one or one but not three, I end up in a ditch. So I just say yes. That's the nature of mysteries. You're saying yes to something that we can't see as being reconciled. It seems to be contrary, but it's not. It seems that way. And we can't get our minds around it. So when you hit a mystery, you fall down and worship. That's what mysteries do for us. There are some places we can't go. John Calvin was really specific about this, that you cannot speculate beyond what the Bible gives us. You must stay with what we're given, and we build our lives on what God gives us. And the things He has given us are for us and for our children after us, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so we leave the secret things with Him. And we take what He gives us and we operate with Him. So where did this sower come from? Eh. But we know this. There is an enemy. He's personal and he's sowing seeds. And that's where the corruption is coming from. And it's a wonderful explanation of a theodicy. So God is saying to his disciples. You've got to realize you have an enemy out there. I read a, an article one time by Stanley Howarehouse uh, in the First Things magazine on preaching, and it was called Preaching as Though We Have Enemies. And his complaint was that a lot of people preach as though there are no enemies out there, just this soporific, you know, snoozer-type message that makes everybody kind of feel good. And what we're really dealing with is we've got men and women, boys and girls here who are worshiping God and who need to be encouraged to go out into a wicked world and fight the battle. And there's a battle out there, and there's a vicious enemy out there. And when we're teaching the Bible to ourselves or to our children, we need to be sure that we know what we're, what we're facing, what we're equipping them for. We better, we better preach as though we have enemies. And you better study the Bible as though you have enemies, because you do have enemies. And I would say not only preaching, but living. Let us live as Christian men who know that we have an enemy and who is sowing seeds out there. And you can't gather all those seeds up. We'll see what the problem is in a moment. But you've got to realize that there's a big enemy out there who's opposed to you and opposed to your daddy, the, Lord, the, the Father in heaven. Now, thirdly, let's look at verses 27 through 29. And here we see Jesus is teaching something extraordinarily important. 
that we must not separate the wheat from the weeds. You must not separate the wheat from the weeds. Now, this has to do not with the church, but with the world. And this is a very important distinction. Because I've heard even preachers say about something going on in their church. Uh, at times, they will say, well, you know, you can't re- separate the wheat from the tares or, or the wheat from the weeds. Oh, yes, you can in the church. And the church has to be making these distinctions. And we've seen in our studies before that, that Jesus Christ, well, we'll see it in Matthew 18. It's the next sermon we're going to deal with, where Jesus teaches us clearly that we confront the corruption that's in our own spiritual family. And that if we have to take action to discipline one another, we certainly do that. And ultimately, uh, we could discipline one another so much that we, we call upon the other person to, to, to make a choice. Either be a Christian with your profession intact and live this lifestyle, or live this lifestyle and just remove your profession to be a Christian because it's not credible. And so Jesus is not undermining his own teaching in Matthew 18 here, nor the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5. Where, he, where Paul teaches us, get the leaven out of the, the dough, get the, the evil and the wickedness out of the church. Purge it, even by excommunication if you must do that. Jesus is not undermining his own teaching a few chapters later. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about the world. So don't try to separate the good over here. Let's just have all the holy people over in this little commune. And let's just put all the wicked people over here in this commune. He's saying, you can't do that. And here's why. Look, look at what he says. He says, uh, the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. No. He didn't say idiot. He just said no. <laughs> Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. If you go and try to purge society of all of its wicked people and just have the good people in your neighborhood, (laughs) you, you are living an illusion. Where do you think some of these seeds have been sown? Right in your wicked old heart. So you'd have to commit suicide to try to get just the good you out. You're all mixed up. You have, you have resident sin in your being. You have residual sin. You have indwelling sin, as we call it, from Romans 7, clearly taught there. We're still fighting a battle with ourselves. The chief battle we fight when we leave this Bible study is with our old wicked selves, our, the, the, the indwelling flesh and, and sin in, our, in, our, in the members of our body. It hasn't taken over headquarters. Headquarters has been taken over by the Lord. The Lord is the Lord of our hearts, but we have all this sin out here, these temptations and actual sins that wage war against us. So we're in a battle with ourselves. How are you going to separate the the good you from the bad you? You're going to end up killing yourself. How are you going to separate the good people from the bad people in society? You're You're going to kill society. And he says here, he uses a wonderful agricultural illustration. Because when wheat was sown, if someone really wanted to do you a dirty they would sow darnel, uh, or, or the old King James calls it tares. Here it's just weeds. What it was was it was a type of grass that grew, and it started to grow, and it looked like weed initially. 
and then it developed a toxic head on it so that if you harvested it with the wheat, it would ruin your wheat. Uh, so you couldn't do that. But it also, its roots go down and entangle with the roots of the wheat. So it's just an unholy mess if someone did that to you. And Jesus said, that's what the devil has done. He has sown this kind of weed in the world that's toxic, that in many ways looks a lot like the real wheat, and its roots go down and entangle with the roots of the wheat in every way. So we have to be very careful that we not tear up the darnel. And when we tear it out and try to weed this place, you end up killing the wheat as well. And so many times haven't we seen Christians often trying to segregate themselves in some unhealthy ways. I mean, honestly, I, just, I think a, a, the Christian Yellow Pages is nuts. You know, trying to develop a network of Christian businesses. Businesses aren't Christians. Christians are Christians. And you have to be very careful how you think about segregating from the world itself. Remember, the Son of Man has sown the sons of God in the world. And so we're intentionally out there. Now, we have to be segregated spiritually. You have to separate yourself spiritually from the wicked influences around you. But when you try to start pulling yourself visibly or physically out of a corrupt world, you end up with a, a, corrupt, a more corrupt church is what you actually end up with. And then you also end up with a world that's more corrupt, that has no wheat at all. Of course the wheat is more difficult to harvest when it's got darn all around it. You have to pick it one head at a time to get clean wheat without the toxic poison in it. Of course it's more difficult. But what Jesus is saying, you do that difficulty rather than tearing up the whole wheat field, trying to clean it up. And so often I think we've, we've done that. Remember also that in 2 Peter 3.9, you might write that verse down, 2 Peter 3.9, Peter teaches us that the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is that he is patient. And he's not willing that any should perish. So he is still gathering in sons of God. Some of our friends who are not yet converted are God's people and don't know it yet. And you and I don't know it yet either. They're his elect. They show no signs of it. You wouldn't know it. They, they are worldlings. They are sold out to the world. But they happen to be the elect of God. Now who they are, we don't know. But I'll tell you what we do know. We know they're out there or Jesus would have come back. The reason Jesus is leaving us in a corrupt world is that he has more wheat to harvest. He has more sons to call to himself. So some of those that look like tares, that look like weeds right now, they're not weeds, they're wheat. And God is going to miraculously convert them. He's patient. And that's the reason he hasn't come to clean up this mess yet. So it's the very reason that we're in this mixed up and corrupt world is because of God's unlimited patience with his people. He's patient with us and he's patient with those who haven't come to him yet. So let's remember that God has a purpose. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't uh, forgotten his promises. But as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the sun shines on the evil and the good. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. They were all mixed up together. There's a thing called common grace. Grace that applies even to the unbeliever. He gets rain and sunshine too. And we're all mixed in this together. That's the reason, of course, 
why our commitment to Memphis is so important and our commitment to every neighborhood. Because we're seeds sown in Memphis, intentionally. And so often, the Bible-believing response is, well, let's just move as far away from it as we can and build the walls as high as we can to protect ourselves against those people. Instead of realizing what the Lord has done, He has put us in this world and in this particular part of the world. And yes, it's corrupt. And yes, we're going to be there. And we do not pull ourselves out. We stay in business until he decides business is over. It's his call. As long as we're in business at his command, we will do our business. And we'll stay in the world. Not as worldlings, but as sons of God. We're sown as sons of God, not as sons of the devil. We're not sown as sons of this world. We're sown as people who are holy to the Lord. So we remain holy to the Lord and we remain holy in the world. Holy, W-H. Holy, H-O-L-Y, to the Lord. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in the world. So that's the trick, and it is a trick indeed. And Jesus is teaching his disciples this because he comes to to the next point, which which helps them understand this this theodicy. This theodicy uh, is coming to an end because in verses uh, 30 and then Uh, It says 19B there. It should be 39B through 43. It's later purified. He says in in verse 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus is saying, Yeah, I know, I know. You you all want to get segregated. There's a reason you want to get segregated. Same reason I want you to be segregated. Because one day, God is going to be glorified by a perfect world. It's going to be completely sanctified. And all evil is going to be destroyed. Of course we want evil destroyed. You say, of course. Here's my point. It's not now. So don't get the not yet confused with the already. Some things are already. Every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms, Paul says, has been given to you in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. But notice that the physical blessings are yet to come. So don't get them mixed up. You have some things already, some things are not yet. And he says in the not yet, the kingdom is going to be purified. In fact, the world is going to be purified. And you can see how he interprets it in verses 39b through 43 at the end of our reading here. He's saying the harvest is the close of the age. And angels will be the reapers. Angels are going to gather up. Angels are going to execute the judgment of God upon the wicked and the angels are going to gather us up to take us to be with the Lord. Why? They're, they're our servants. These glorious beings who are magnificent in their, their radiant array. These glorious beings are our servants, our butlers, our cooks, if you will. They're going to take care of us and they're going to come get us and take us to be with the Lord. The Son of Man will send His angels, He said, And they were gathered out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Do you see this? The angels will take away from us every cause of sin. Think about that. Lots of causes of sin, aren't there? Think about all the things that, that contribute to your sin. All those allurements. All those things out there that seek to trip you up they're all going to be completely destroyed. Do you know what the 
Do you know what the, the prostitute is going to look like? Dust with a little stench. That, that's what it is. He's going to take care of all of the things that prostitute our hearts out there in the world. He's also going to gather up all the lawbreakers. That's another way of, that's another way of describing the wicked or the unbelieving in the world. They're lawbreakers. He's going to gather all of them up and throw them into the fiery furnace. And there they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, gentlemen, I don't know what's exact, uh, uh, literal language, and what's figurative. But take it either way, figurative or literal, and it looks very painful to me. I don't know if people are going to have teeth. You know, if I last much longer, I'm not going to have teeth if I, unless I get resurrected and go to heaven. But I don't know whether I'll have teeth, uh, whether I'll gnash my teeth or my ears or what. I don't know whether it's all literally exactly as it says here, gnashing my teeth. I don't know if I'll be weeping with tears. I don't know exactly what kind of eyeballs I'll have. Oh, but I get this really clearly from this passage in chapter 8, in chapter 22, chapter 24, and chapter 25, when Jesus mentions this over and over and over again, here it is, a big warning. This is not going to be painless. There is punishment involved. And some people would like to think that we could just nicely be annihilated. I don't see annihilation here. What I see are people who wish they were annihilated. Annihilation would be a favor to those who are the wicked. But here I see Jesus describing on multiple occasions, more than any other prophet in the Old Testament, he's describing a miserable existence, miserable existence for those who rebel against him. And what you see in Daniel chapter 12 is that there will be a bodily resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. You get the same thing in John chapter 5. In fact, let's turn over to John chapter 5, and you'll, you'll find that on page 2000. On page uh, 2032, 2032, John 5, 28. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul says, the same thing in Acts 24 in his defense of the faith. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says we'll be judged for the deeds done in the body. So we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the believers and the unbelievers, and we'll all be judged in bodies. And there will be bodily pleasure and bodily pain. That's the picture that's laid out for us. You may say, that's just too fantastic for me to believe. Hey, look, I, I never said this stuff was easy to believe. But let's be clear about it. That's what Jesus is teaching. And, I, and I've, I chose a long time ago to trust Him and to take His teachings for what they are and to believe them. And your belief is an act of your will based on your heart and what you want. And when you, when you come to Christ, what you want is His glory and His honor and by an act of the will, you take what he teaches you. You say, that, those are my marching orders. And this is what I believe about eternity and about life. And here he's, he couldn't be clear that one day this old corrupt world is going to be purified. And the good will be separated from the evil. The wheat will be separated from the weeds. 
The, the angels will take care of this upon orders from the Lord. When the archangel appears, we're told, with a trumpet of loud command, and then the, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those others will also rise with their bodies to be judged. So it appears as though there's some form of bodily existence even in hell itself. So Jesus says to his disciples, don't get impatient. Don't try to bring perfect justice now by using imperfect means. No, perfect justice can only be administered by him in his time. For now, we continue to fight the battle of the proclamation of the gospel, of ministering to people by word and deed, and of implementing social justice to the best of our ability in a corrupt world. And when you're trying to administer social justice with people who don't believe the Bible, it's very, very difficult. All the confusion that's going on now about social justice, using a largely biblical civil rights legacy and distorting it to use it for gay rights. And certainly, gentlemen, uh, folks who are gay and lesbian have, uh, lesbians should have every right and access to every civil right that's available to you and me. But there's a, long, there's a big difference between that and promoting an unbiblical sexual lifestyle as though there are no consequences. And what Jesus is saying, there are consequences to this. And it's only a corrupt world who encourages people to a lifestyle, not an orientation. We're all broken. All of our orientation is goofed up. If you're a heterosexual, your orientation is still screwed up. You want what doesn't belong to you, and you want it when you want it. You want it with whomever you want it. You have an orientation that's massively screwed up. And if you're going to walk with Jesus, you have to put a lid on it. And so if you're gay, you also have a bad orientation. And you have to put a lid on it. Everybody has to put a lid on it. And, and I'm not talking about a condom either, by the way. I'm talking about... <laughs> I tell you what, if you only knew what crossed my mind, I don't, I don't say everything I think. <laughs> I only said that because I knew what you were thinking. I'm talking about putting a moral lid on your behavior. You know what I'm talking about. Who said that anyway? Uh, we all have to control and constrain ourselves. And a society that teaches people there's no need for constraint when they're, and they're encouraging them in wicked, unbiblical, sexual lifestyle is a culture that is massively corrupt. And that's what you live in. And when you make, when you make civil rights cases, which you must make, because that's biblical, that people have their civil rights, including those with different sexual orientations. They have a right and to access to public uh, uh, benefits. But when that same culture is encouraging them in that behavior, which is what we're doing, now we have become unjust, not just. Expect the world to understand that? Forget it. You live in a corrupt world that distorts truth and will leverage pieces of truth to lead to a lie. And that's what they're doing. They take pieces of civil rights justice and they distort it to come up with a lie. They'll always do that. So what are you going to do? Uh, move a little further out east. Put the walls up a little higher. Select your channels a little bit more carefully. Is that what you're going to do? Uh, that's what some people prefer to do. But that's not being seeds sown in the world, it seems to me. We have to live holy lives, holy in the world. And we have to wait patiently for the day of judgment that's going to come. And part of our message is 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and flee from the wrath to come. There is justice coming and part of our message is get reconciled to the King and He has a way for us to live that pleases Him as we wait upon Him. We're encouraging the entire culture to do this. Keep encouraging them. No matter how small a minority you may become, you just keep living as wheat in the world where the devil has sown many sons of the devil. Now that's that parable of the wheat and the weeds, and it is God's theodicy. It's Christ's theodicy. Here's how you explain the presence of evil. Yes, the enemy is at work, but just wait. Just wait, and you will see how the Lord is going to bring a grand conclusion to all of this. Now the next two parables are similar, and I want us to look at them briefly. In verses 31-32, we have the parable of the mustard seed. It's a wonderful little parable. It tells us something very important. This is what it teaches us about the kingdom. Now it's tiny. Later it's enormous. Yes, of course, it's a tiny little thing. The kingdom of God. You can take it... Uh, around the world, uh, look, look at the numbers of professing Christians. It's about 30% of the population. Do you, do you realize how this thing got started? It got started with Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel about 2,000 years ago with not one follower. And he said to James and John and Peter and Andrew, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. It started with four people. And at that time, there were 100 million people in the world and four disciples. And then he goes and he calls some more and a few more. And then you got 12. One of them ends up being a betrayer. And the 11 that he had were real knuckleheads. That's the team that's going to change the world. 11 knuckleheads and one betrayer. And then after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes. Ah, they get it. So by the time he ascends, apparently... Uh, there are 500 people who are his followers who are there at the ascension. Now that's pretty good. You know, over three years, built this thing to 500 people out of 100 million. Work your percentages. Pretty small. Mustard seed. Then what happens? Well, they start going to all the world. People start getting killed over this because they, they, they were taught by Jesus very well. This, this, the devil, the enemy, has sown seeds. And the seeds he's sown are often in the church. And it was the synagogue that beat the apostles up first and then later the, the pagans. It started with the religious people. They beat him up. And then the pagans beat him up and imprisoned him and finally uh, put, him, put them to death, uh, all but one of them. So they go out and give their lives for this. But by, by the end of the first century, you know what you're looking at, one million professing Christians by the year 100 A.D. Hey, we're up to 1%. Well, it's a long story those 1,900 years, but now we're at the point where 30% of the world's population is professing Christ. And a lot of demographers and missiologists suggest that probably about 9% of the world's population actually believe the gospel. So you've got 30% professing it, but you've got about a third of them. You've got a third of the world professing and about a third of the third who seem to be really trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, that's a lot of people, folks. If you've got a world population of 7 billion people, uh, then uh, you know 10% of that is 700 million. Am I correct on this, my numbers? Yeah, that was, yeah. So that, that's a lot of people, isn't it? So this mustard seed is growing. 
And Jesus was telling his disciples during the years when there weren't going to be too many disciples, look, don't get discouraged by the day of small things. Don't get discouraged because you're not making progress with this person or that person. Now, let me tell you something. The kingdom of God has energy in it. It grows. It's of God. It's of divine power. It's beyond your ability or your inability. It is God himself who's making this kingdom grow, and it's going to grow. Now, in various parts of the world, the church, as I mentioned earlier, has been extinguished, at least temporarily. But don't think that that's permanent. The evangelists are going to come back, and they're going to replant those churches, and that's exactly what we're doing around the world. In those places where the government or somebody else extinguished uh, the church, we're going right back in and evangelizing again. And you'll find that God has more people in that culture, and he's leading them to himself. He's growing this kingdom around the world. It keeps growing, keeps growing. And he says it's going to grow into a mighty tree. In this case, a mustard bush would grow to about 10 or 12 feet high. It's the smallest seed in the agricultural knowledge of the Israeli. It, it was just a tiny little seed. You put it in the ground, boom, a few years later, birds are nesting in it. People are finding rest in it. Social justice is being executed by the church. Deeds of love and mercy are overcoming the poverty that the Roman Empire and that all other empires have imposed upon their people. The gospel is leading people with hope and encouragement who didn't have any hope before. This is happening around the world. Jesus says, don't be led astray because, yes, now it's tiny, but later it's enormous, and the birds of the air will come and make nests in its branches. It's just like they say about an oak tree. An oak tree is just a little nut that stood its ground. And that's what the church has done. You take the message of the gospel, you trust in the power of the Spirit, and you'll find that God is going to work through you whether you live or die. And many of our fathers did die, and they died for the gospel. But the gospel kingdom continues to go forward because the purposes of God will not be thwarted by any work of the enemy. The work of the enemy is part of his plan. I don't know where he came from or why exactly God did it. But I know this, God allowed it and it's part of his purpose. And one day he's going to glorify himself through judging even the devil himself. That it's all going to work out for the glory of God and the good of his people. So don't be thrown off by the tiny little works of the kingdom. You know, just recently uh, in Mozambique, one of the poorest countries in the world, in uh, sort of southeast Africa, and uh, we were looking to do some work there with World Relief. And you just look at the devastation. Of course, they had this massive flood just two or three weeks ago. And they were already in abject poverty. And it's just hard for me to imagine these villages I was in now with knee-deep water everywhere. And everything's destroyed. Not that there was that much, but whatever they had was completely destroyed. And you look at it and you say, how could the, how could the kingdom of God ever take root here? And you look at, there are a few churches, and you know what they're doing? They're having animal sacrifices, literally. It's a combination of old African voodoo with, with some mixture of some Christian ideas. And the church is itself just so corrupt, and you say, how could you ever start anything here? What hope is there possibly for these people? Where do you ever start? Don't despise the mustard seed, gentlemen. You start and you plant those little teeny seeds. And once you plant them, it's out of your hands because the power of God takes over. When He regenerates people and He gets them turned on to His love, they do all kinds of things that go way beyond anything you ever dreamt of. We just plant the seeds, the little tiny mustard seeds, and He promises us that it turns into a massive kingdom. Just wait. 
Then lastly, verses 33 through 35, he tells us about the kingdom that now it's hidden. Later it'll be known. And he told them this parable about leaven. And you know, leaven is hidden. It's inside the loaf. And he says here, a woman had three measures of flour. That's about 50 pounds. 50 pounds of flour. That's huge. But you put this little leaven in the middle of it. It's hidden. And then he says, over time, uh, it will all be leavened. The whole loaf will be leavened. Why? Because this kingdom grows relentlessly and pervasively. It is taking over everything. So, yes, of course, we're concerned about the growth of this religion or that religion, especially the religions that chop your head off. We, we don't like to see them growing in numbers. And we're really concerned. Who's going to win? Is it this kingdom over here or this kingdom over here? Let me tell you something, gentlemen. The answer's already decided. It was decided a long time ago. And Jesus is teaching it here. There's one kingdom of God. It is growing is pervasive and has taken over the entire world. And we need to remember this. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we are now cryptically in Christ. He uses the word cryptic. We are hidden in Christ so that when you look at a believing man, he looks just like the unbeliever sitting right next to him. But he says one day he will be known for who he is. And what is that day? It's when Christ comes back and we know him for who he is. Right now, Christ is invisible to us. You're preaching someone who's not visibly here. You notice how difficult that is? It's one thing if you're talking about, you know, hey, we've got a president, President Obama. He shows up on TV. You see him every once in a while he comes to Memphis. People say, there's our president. Let's, let's respect our president. Let's follow our president. Fine, he's right here. He's, he's a real person. He's got a real army, a real air force, a real Marine Corps. He's also got a navy. I knew you'd wonder if I could leave that out. He's, he's got a navy, merchant marines. He's got all these powerful people. He's got local police force. They're all protecting him. It's pretty easy to talk about the power of Obama. What about Jesus? Do you see any army? Do you see any navy? Do you see any Marine Corps? Where is he? And everyone's just making fun of you for your invisible religion. It's invisible. And you know, it's very difficult to proclaim an invisible Messiah. One who's apparently, apparently not here. But he says, just because he's not visible to your eyes, don't think for a moment he's not here. He's in the whole batch of flour. He's like leaven. And it is growing everywhere. And he is indeed here. He is indeed powerful. And one day you'll see his army and his navy and his marine corps. And it would be wise of you right now to bow down to his majesty, for he is the great king. Don't be thrown off, he says to his disciples. Now you live in a day of small things. Now you live in a day when it appears as though the good things are invisible or hidden from, from human sight. But there's coming a day when there'll be a grand revelation. And you'll see this massive kingdom in all of its glory. And it will radiate. And he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's you. These little seeds that are planted out there and have weeds all around them and, you, and you're, just, you're there in the dirt and you think nobody notices, I'm not doing any good, nothing matters. One day you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. The sun in all of its radiance and all of its massive power cannot be compared 
to one saint who is being glorified by the Lord. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And that's the reason that for 2,000 years we've not lost heart. That's the reason we haven't stopped. That's the reason that we continue to proclaim the gospel. It's the reason we continue to execute social justice wherever we go. It's the reason that we prevail and continue even to our death because we believe the parables of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for teaching us about the kingdom. We need to be taught for all we can see is the dirt and the weeds. Lord, help us to see the future. Help us to see the sower. Help us to believe in where you're taking us all and to live as the men we really are, your sons, your sons that you've placed here for a reason and upon whom you've called to be patient until their Father comes to get them. And we would wait patiently and serve you and trust that you'll continue to grow your kingdom until we see your lovely face. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.